welcome to the current thing with me, Nick Dixon, where we talk about politics, the culture war, and anything else that comes up. And today we have another brilliant guest, one of the finest comedians in the country, and now GB News presenter. Of course, it's Mr. Simon Evans. Thanks for doing the show, Simon. You're very welcome, Nick. Thanks for having me. And no exaggeration to say you are one of the country's best comedians. And how was your... And by the way, I've always said that that makes you one of the best comedians in the world, since Britain is one of the the foremost comedy country. So let's just go big. Let's just go. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? And well, how no, was well, your... Go on. Universe. Great, one of the greatest comedians in the universe, probably. Let's go so, there. Why you know, not? Yeah. yeah. Solar it must system, be true. certainly. All known solar systems and galaxies. Um, <laughs> how, you just got back from Edinburgh, rather yeah. you than me, but how, I know you like the Edinburgh Festival. How was it? Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of ways you could answer that. I, I had a good run. I got good audiences, and I made them laugh. That's the main thing. Um, I use it always as a as a means. I'm I'm in a kind of eighteen month creative cycle with Edinburgh. Generally speaking, I take a new new show up there, which um, I use Edinburgh as a bit of a forge as well as a display unit. You know, it's kind of it's a workshop uh, as well as it is a uh, a showcase. The first time around, then I tour it for a year, and then take it back in an absolutely glistening, perfected form, and um, and the second time around usually put 2.0 or something after the title to say this is the same show but it's but it is evolved I mean I find it very difficult to to write a show as such I don't know I think that's possibly like most comedians if they're honest don't really write a show it's more like it's it's endlessly thrown up like a pizza base you know and you just do it and do it and do it until it gets right and um, you find if you write it, you don't remember what it was you wanted to say when you get up there. It has to be done on the hoof, um, you know. So it's, uh, it's yeah, it's a creative process as much as it is just a, a performing one. And, um, and from that point of view, I was pretty happy with it. And um, But I've got more performing and creativity to do over the next few months. I'm, I'm touring it over the autumn. And there's more stuff I want to bring in. I find it really interesting. I, I mean, it might be self-indulgent to some extent, but I find it really interesting how I think a lot like poetry, for instance, one of the things that poems uh, poets have always said is that the stricter the the meter and the form you're working with, like a sonnet or something, the more creative it forces you to be, you know. Mm. And, and Edinburgh is a lot like that. You've got an hour and you give the show a title, usually about in March, long before you have any idea what it is you're going to talk about, you know. And the more you kind of uh, limit your choices with that title and that time and so on, the more you're forced to try and make sense of what you've committed yourself to. So I called this show Have We Met?, which was, and the intention was it was supposed to be about failing memory, but I got the title, Have We Met?, from something that an old manager of mine in pre-comedy days used to write on leaving cards when anyone left from the open plan office. He'd always write, good luck, uh, Maureen or whatever, kind regards, Robin Coates, brackets, have we met? And uh, it always made me laugh because it was obviously a kind of, you know, a, a little bit of a, a joke at the expense of the the the, the kind of the pretense that there's this kind of great community you know, of everyone when they come around with a leaving card. But it's turned out that my show is kind of about leaving cards to some extent as well, or sort of in a broader sense of saying farewell to certain things and recognising that certain things are passing. Um, after 26 years in stand-up comedy, 58 years on the planet, my children are growing up, um, you know, lockdown was a kind of strange, frozen, suspended animation. They're, my daughter's now off to university this autumn and things are changing and moving on. And I'm sort of realising I'm in quite elegiac mode, but hopefully I can make that funny as well. Okay. And it's so slightly, there is a concept, but slightly less high concept than your previous show. 
yeah, there's no huge revelation, although there are one or two smaller revelations, which um, I did discover during that last show, the, the one that you're referring to, the work of the devil, in which um, the big revelation was my discovery that I was donor-conceived and that the man whose sperm donation allowed my mother to get pregnant was um, the single most prolific sperm donor of the of the modern era, as far as we know, hundreds if not perhaps even a thousand children um, to his credit an absolute uh, legend in other words yes exactly <laughs> and it made a lot of sense of me um i found out i'm half jewish i found out i have um as, as i say so my father who's still alive you know who had a, I, don't, I don't know not a particularly dysfunctional relationship with or kind of he, he was a good father but i always felt a little bit of distance from him in a way i couldn't put my finger on and so that's explained that um, but yeah, it also explains a lot about being a stand-up comedian as well, I think, you know, which is a tends to be a thing, a, a thing arguably that's a Jewish form in itself, but perhaps more to the point, you, it, it's often people who feel they're a bit of a cuckoo in the nest who are, who are um, forced into stand-up comedy. Increasingly now, of course, in Edinburgh, you see it, it, it seems to attract a lot of people who are working through gender identity or racial identity or you know, uh, sexual orientation or whatever, and almost to the extent that it is becoming slightly formulaic in that respect or predictable. But um, but I think it's always been people who just didn't feel they were quite kind of yeah, uh, a smoothly fitting part in the machine. Makes me wonder about my parents, because of course I'm the black sheep of my family, but then I'm left-handed. I look just like my dad with the same laugh. I mean, it's just too much there. So it's yeah. just, I think it's purely I've got the wrong, I don't know what it is with me, because it's nothing like your thing. And um, I think you can just be a black sheep anyway. You absolutely can. I mean, my wife suggested to me that I did a podcast myself, in which, which would be called So Why Are You a Stand-Up? And I would just talk to a series of stand-ups to try and un unpick what it is about them. That you know, But it would always be something like that. Quite a few very well-known stand-ups, very successful stand-ups are adopted and have known that they were. Um, quite a few are dyslexic. I've always found that quite interesting. Is I think there's a higher proportion of dyslexia in, in stand-up comedy. And this is partly that thing, of course, now every single stand-up has the ADHD diagnosis, but maybe dyslexia was the fashionable one 20 years ago. But I do think dyslexia is plausible because it often... Um, it often uh, attaches to people who are intelligent and have things to say but find it difficult to do so written down, you know what I mean, and through books. Yeah. And so stand-up becomes a, a means by which they can get it all out, you know, in the same way that perhaps 20 years earlier they might have been a, a guitarist or something. Well, I, I play guitar as well, but I certainly don't have dyslexia because I'm really good with words. But for me, <laughs> maybe that's why I've left comedy. Maybe that's why I've gone into commentary. But for me, I was yeah. just funny when I was 10. I was, I was making the whole class and the teacher laugh with quite sophisticated puns and like on the off the cuff stuff. And I remember like a moment of, of just making a great joke when I was 10 and everyone yeah. just laughing, including the teacher and that amazing feeling. So I just think it's actually a born in, my theory is it's a born in talent. And all the suffering I had later of being like spat on in secondary school and beaten up <laughs> was all unnecessary just to, yeah. you know, because I actually had that because Jerry Seinfeld says it's just a talent and it's actually not about all this suffering. I, I mean, I don't think it's suffering. Just, just a sense that you don't see the world quite the way everyone else does, or you're nonconformist, or you just—I mean, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know, great American uh, philosopher, not not a, you know, didn't look for uh, some excuse as to why he felt at odds with the world, but celebration of nonconformity. John Stuart Mill, celebration of nonconformity. Be eccentric. Say the thing that goes against the grain. Have the courage. Right. And of course, it takes a tiny bit less courage when you're a sort of hooded assassin in a classroom to uh, to just kind of spot the. Normally, when you get 
get a bit of a laugh in front of the teacher with the crowd. People say, well, you're the class clown, but you're not really a clown. You're more like a sniper, I always think. You know, yes. you're, you're picking out, you know, you're taking your moment and you're, that's the flaw in your argument. Um, or that's the moment at which you have accidentally exposed yourself or another member of the teaching faculty or whatever to ridicule. And yeah. um, and so, yeah, you, you grab that, you know, but it doesn't have to, no, it doesn't have to be biologically um rooted it doesn't have to be uh, a suggestion that but you know i think there is there is a great tradition i don't think anyone would argue that uh, the jews especially in america you know uh, a, a huge contribution to stand-up comedy as we understand it in this country a lot of celts you would probably go look at the, the scottish uh, folk circuit for the the likes of Connolly and so on um, it's often slightly kind of, you know, outside of the mainstream. And the mainstream comics are, are, to be honest, a little bit kind of flat and boring a lot of the time. You know, the ones that are part, kind of light entertainment, I suppose, rather than uh, people with any real commentary to that's worth listening to. Yeah. And um, so there's like two threads there. I don't want to leave all the... the Donor, what's the official term? Donor, I don't want to get the wrong term. Donor conceived is the donor word conceived. I've been told, but I mean, I don't, I don't know any better term. But I don't. Yeah. It's, there's no. It's not like anything you say would annoy me. <laughs> well, I have a, okay. I have a couple of. Well, it might annoy some listener. I have a couple of questions yeah. about that. But you've covered that so much on a, a different podcast I invented. Uh, I don't want to go into it too much. But, <laughs> but 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 I do have some questions. But then I've also got some questions on the stand-up thing. The sniper thing, by the way, is absolutely correct because that's from all my life until like. For about the first three decades, but I thought my whole job was just to any conversation. Wait, come in with the funny yeah. joke in the pub and with family, whatever it is. I just that's, that's what I thought life was. You wait, yeah. you see the opportunity, bang, you strike, you get out. It's like that's just all I thought it was being funny. But you don't really get a chance when you're in a professional funny environment. When you're just a funny person at the pub, it's just so good with normies. Yeah. It's just amazing. Absolutely. My, my first laugh and my first taste of enjoying being a stand-up comic was at the comedy store as a heckler. I can still remember it at the exact <laughs> moment and getting a massive laugh as a, with a heckle, you know. And it wasn't even like a particularly aggressive one. It was... A, it was, it was to be fair, the guy was weak. He was, uh, you know, doing his open spot or his first 10 or something. And he he stumbled, you know, and was starting to lose the crowd. And it was that that puncturing moment that... Uh, but, but, That's yeah, so funny I mean, you started as a heckler. It's like yeah. starting as a victim. And then, then I became the perpetrator of Christ. I don't know how, what that is. That's but then so I funny. think when you're, I mean, you know, the, you know what, what's his name? Ken Campbell made that documentary and he called it The, the, the History of Stand-Up Comedy or something, part one, ventriloquism, and then he, he never made any other parts. It was a sort of suggestion that that's all it was. But there is some truth to that. The, the ventriloquist dummy is like the, you know, the, it's the integration of that. Do you know that whole thing of... Um, you know, the breakdown of consciousness in the bicameral mind, the point at which we stop hearing voices that we think are the gods is the origin of, of modern conceptions of consciousness. Anyway, it's an, it's an, it was a, an interesting but you know, probably a very speculative book written in the 60s, I think, by a man called Julian James about, about um, how we are to read Homer and stuff and the extent to which people seem to think they lived in a world inhabited by gods. Well, the idea is that this is how they're, how they're in a monologue seemed to them at the time. So yeah. at the point point is in a, with a ventriloquist you've separated the straight man and the and the and the funny man within the same act right you've created your own double act so you, you yourself are you always the straight man and the dummy says the unsayable it's always the dummy that transgresses never the other way around and um and then when you're a stand-up you basically have to integrate that even further so you are essentially you're your own straight man and then you know your, your your little evil devil puppet on your shoulder chips in occasionally with a. Of course, you would say that, wouldn't you? Because you're you know, and and you have to sort of make yeah. it a plausible internal dialogue. Do you know what? While we're talking about obscure books and stand up, 
which is two of your favorite topics, I believe. I've got a, I've, I brought, I've got a little thing here from so a book called Prometheus Rising, which I think now, I think as a Christian, I think Christians would find this to be very much a pagan banned book. It's by Robert Anton Wilson. And, and just a book I happened to have from years ago. The reason I thought of it was when I first saw your stand-up on telly, as a as a young as a youngster at, at school, actually, still it, it was on maybe Paramount Comedy or one of those things, and it was you yeah. doing the your your old joke about you know if you're struggling to place my accent, it's actually educated was one of your famous kind of opener. Well, I'm saying yeah. famous, famous to me because when I saw your stand-up, Simon, I don't think anyone, particularly watching headliners, would say Simon and Nick are the same personality, but it, it immediately connected with me as this is someone kind of like me this is i get this and i think it was the emphasis on writing the kind of intellectual aspect the kind of maybe a willingness to sort of alienate if necessary you know there was a kind of outsider thing to that and it just immediately connected with me and uh, and the only other person that did was Stuart francis who was just doing one-liners which i didn't even really understand at the time would just were called one-liners i just thought this is good but um it was, it was you and him and the, where other people were just more performance based it just seemed to be jumping around to me i was like it, it didn't connect with me at all yeah, I can see some connection with Stuart. And it's quite interesting. Funny enough, I've just written a tiny thing about Stuart today in context of I've just been beefing up a thing I wrote for Spite during the festival about the Dave joke of the year, you know, that the oh, weird yeah. thing that happened with the cheaters, which I'm convinced there's more to than meets the eye with that. But anyway, I was saying Stuart Francis was the, the king of the one-liners, but also his one-liners used to then combine over the course of a set to actually create a, a, a more furnished... You know, if you just stood, stood back and went, right. oh, okay, he's had a childhood in which his father is endlessly trying to kill him, you know, and, uh, right, you know, right, he's, endless, yes. he's endlessly swimming back to the beach, you know. Yeah, and it's, um, yeah. it's it's a brilliant technique, that, to make you think it's just a one-liner and then it turns out the next, right. there's going to be a callback as well. But, yeah, the willingness to alienate and to situate yourself as a superior intellect. I mean, that is in itself quite funny if you're yeah. willing to go there, but it is a high-risk strategy, yeah, to take a high status is... The reason it, it relates to the book, because otherwise it'll be a weird non sequitur that I brought that up, is yeah. Anton Wilson has this weird thing. He talks about the four humours, you know, bilious humour, sanguinary humour, choleric humour, and phlegmatic. But then he, he mm. sort of expands them, and he, he has a thing called hostile strength, which is he defines as I'm okay, you're not okay. And I immediately thought, that's the one that Cyber's doing, which is to say, <laughs> I'm educated. Well, you were doing in the past. I'm educated, yeah. you're not. Or, you know, you yeah. talk about Newcastle and... They got the joke eventually. One of them got the joke, passed it around, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was winter up there, had been for years, all that kind of thing. And you're saying, I'm smart and brilliant, and you, you look a kind of, uh, you know, yahoos to some extent. And I really, yeah. and then there was one that was hostile weakness, and I immediately thought, that's exactly what I'm doing, which is he defines <laughs> as I'm not okay, you're not okay. And that's what I was always doing with stand-up, is I'll attack myself and everyone else. So I am going to attack the venue. I am going to attack the city and me as well, brutally. And, and then... Then he's got sanguinary or friendly strength. I'm okay, you're okay, which I thought was pure McIntyre. Aren't we having a great time? I'm ultra confident, but everything's great. And then it was like, and then it was friendly weakness, which is I'm not okay, you're okay. I'm not sure who that is. Perhaps a kind of Lee Evans. That's a kind of just sort of, yeah, kind of total sort of loser character, which quite a lot of comedians do play actually, like a kind of, Oh, I'm a pathetic loser and helpless. I mean, in the world. Daniel Kitson had very, very low status in some regards. You remember, I don't know if you've seen him. He sort of went off the circuit, and went yeah, private, yeah. and just you know, he's made a very good business model just through having people who understand themselves to be, you know, um, part of a cult. But but he <laughs> he used to shuffle on stage, genuinely looking like a like a kind of paedophile, like an old-fashioned park-based, you know, van-based paedophile, with thick glasses and greasy hair and everything, and yet. It was deceptive because even though he was 
obviously one of life's losers. I mean, there was no question he was absolutely one of life's losers. And yet somehow he still made you feel like he'd got one over on you. You know, it wasn't apologetic. I don't know if anyone can really be that friendly, weak thing that, you know, mm, yeah, like, yeah. That, that is like a dog that wants to get beaten. It's not funny. You won't you won't laugh at that, I don't think. I think maybe like in a character in a movie, a sort of a Norman Wisdom type character, maybe maybe someone yeah possibly possibly i think the right guy a sort of frank spencer possibly i'm not i'm not sure um anyway i just thought that just struck me as a kind of obscure thing to mention but but no it's interesting but you started with that and then you can and it it connected with me immediately but then you moved sort of you softened a bit with your persona and kind of became just more sort of rounded would you say that's true sort of just more who you are I think well, there is that certainly. It's it's tiring to sustain a very sort of um, high concept and false thing, paradigm. And and I hadn't really gone into stand up intending to create this arrogant character. It just seemed to chime with people. You know, you try a few different things out, and you notice what the audience go. Ah, yes, that's you. You know, it's it's a lot in the early days. A lot of it is down to listening and to seeing what plays well. I remember um, this is slightly unnerving, but I remember watching Jordan Peterson only a couple of years ago. Who, of course, you will now do the brilliant impression of, who um, who said in one of his old, you know, when he used to do his, his talks from his lecture rooms in in Toronto University, I think it was. Um, that he believed that most of the world's great orators, you know, that's what how they start out. Like if uh, when Hitler in the 1930s, um, who is so closely associated now with anti-Semitism that you would think it was his driving force and it was motivating him to do everything. But in Peterson's view, he suspects that actually he probably tried that out among a few other things when he was making his early speeches, you know, in upstairs in pubs in, in downtown Munich. And he noticed that that seemed to get everyone's attention. You know, every time you mention the Jews, people start going, yeah, that's right, the Jews, isn't it? You know, and it, and so you sort of bring that forward in the in the routine, you know. And, and there, Are you I saying mean, that was just material that worked? Yeah, this is the material exactly. that worked. It's so go, hard to write new material. Exactly. You just go, oh, well, I'll do some more stuff about the Jews, you know. And there is an element of that. And I think in my, my sets, contain things that I wasn't sure that I would you know that I wanted to talk about but they immediately chime and I think to some extent the idea that I was yeah educated and from the upper classes but it isn't true at all Uh, I'm not privately educated you know and um, anyway I think what I think the decisive moment to be honest was when we moved to to uh, when we had kids and then moved down to the coast down to Brighton and Hove and um I started to feel like a beleaguered dad then at that point. It was quite a different mode generally that I was in as well, you know, having enjoyed bachelorhood well into my mid-30s, I was suddenly overburdened with responsibilities of one kind or another and it just didn't seem plausible anymore to write kind of, you know, contemporary. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I'd made as many mistakes as the next man. (laughs) Right, right. When you're in there with the nappies, you're like, I'm I'm superior. Yeah, I see your point. Um, And so you did sort of, and and you sort of, your delivery became a bit more sort of long form and then you changed to your classic opener, this is all very well, but where are his eyes? And I've told you about that before. I've explained to you the genius of your own joke, which I'm sure you're well aware of, which is the line, this is all very well, which is just so Simon Evans. And other people have misquoted it. And I'm like, no, no, you've misquoted it. This is all very well, but which is just such an extremely funny way of putting it, as if the audience is sitting there going, this is all very well. It's just an (laughs) arcane, polite, 1920s, absurd way of putting it, but it's so perfect. 
Anyway, I had a few phrases like that that I, I think they maybe came from Alan Corran. I'm not sure the um, you know his ability to just you know drop it or maybe Woodhouse. I don't know. There, there's obviously a handful of you know universally revered comedy prose writers. There was one in an earlier bit of material about the um, the homeless in King's Cross. I think was very early material when I used to live out there about saying. Um, you know, uh, a lot of homeless in King's Cross. It's terribly sad, and so on and so forth. <laughs> and it was the so on and yeah, so forth yeah, again. Yeah. You know, dismissing it, any kind of. Yeah, yeah, I'm not yeah. going to go into any more details about the sympathy that they're due, but but still, one can't <laughs> help but feel. You know. Yeah, you're so, so. I mean, I could quote your lines all day, like an absolute fanboy. But I, I loved your one about your dad. You talking about ergonomic gardening tools and how it's all got ridiculously advanced where you said oh, it wasn't yeah. like that Ben you, most of his tools still had German blood on them which I thought was one of the <laughs> all time great lines I mean and you had your by the way lastly on, on nerding out about your comedy the diving watch joke is one of the greatest jokes because in terms of tags which if the listener doesn't know is when you add an additional joke to the joke your diving watch joke has the most Excellent ta- repeated three tags. tags. Yeah, so I think good. three is about as far as you can go, isn't it? Before it starts. I've gone four, like Simon, it. but it's not for Have everyone. You? No, no, I don't have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, everyone should look up that as well because I don't want to badly quote it now, but but it's probably I'm sure it's still on YouTube or something. But um, I got so into comedy nerd stuff, but but when you said that comedians are an outsider traditionally, I just on that I just oh, want to say on that my my great um. Uh, influence or like lodestone or whatever for for the tagging thing mm-hmm. which is once you've established a comedy principle just like giving it a little twist and each time is got to be Woody Allen's moose routine which ah, yes. um, there are like almost single word tags in certain sections of there like the moose does well mingles scores you know yeah it, it, each word is just like oh my god it's it's genius it's like it's like turning like a slalom you know at high speed amazing yeah and that was my other big thing growing up, listening to the Woody Allen stand-up, whatever it was called, that stand-up CD he had, which was yes. so good. You know, it was more influenced by the comedy than his personal life. But yeah, that was the, another big influence for me. But anyway, I, I've semi-stopped comedy, so who cares about me? But it, but when you say <laughs> the comedian's an outsider, you did mention it briefly saying Billy Connolly was, but others were a bit boring. Isn't that the big problem now in comedy, that they're not outsiders, they're weird conformist activists who aren't even comedians. It's all about groupthink and towing the line with... You know, we could say wokeness or whatever word that people think we say on GB, but um, it's, it's destroyed the whole meaning of the comedian, the whole purpose. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know necessarily whether it's it's. I mean, it could be that these things have happened side by side, or it could be that one has influenced the other. I think possibly as much as as much as wokeness or a certain kind of superficially. Um, outsider status, which is actually so thoroughly endorsed by woke capital and what have you, that you know people like us roll our eyes at it, and going, "You think you, you know, you think you're a rebel. You think you're the, you, you know, you're you're the outsider." And in reality, the establishment couldn't be more thoroughly on your side, you know. But I do think also it's just the way that almost any creative industry, you know, will flower over the course of. I don't know, was it like I started in 96, 97, and I was looking earlier, you know, when I was up in Edinburgh, looking back to the Perrier shortlist in, in 97 was Milton Jones, Al Murray, Graham Norton, Johnny Vegas, and the League of Gentlemen. I mean, just an incredible, you know, a five, uh, a fistful of talent there that every single one of those people went on to have a significant impact. But every single one of those people inspires five new people. Every single one of those people inspires five new And before you know it, it's a bit like, 
um, every year in the garden, if you plant like rosemary or lavender, by the end of the year, you've got this horrible tangled mess of sort of gnarly, undifferentiated shrubbery that needs uprooting and starting again. And I kind of feel we're at that point with comedy. It's not, it's not that they're they're not like, excuse me, it's not that they're deliberately um, uh, like a group think or, or you know subject you know cautious or, uh, or or anxious not to transgress social norms or whatever it's just that there's too many of them mm. there are just too many people and there are only a certain number of things that anyone can meaningfully say or do that's funny in society at any given point and when there's just too many clamoring it, it becomes you know the life of Brian thing we are all individuals I'm not you know we're in that state <laughs> at the moment I'm afraid Interesting. And the, the fact that there are too many could mean, because comedy was famous, well, famously, some people will know it was kind of booming in the 90s and in the clubs you could make a lot of money. And then suddenly you couldn't. I never saw that phase starting in 2011, but I was constantly told about the old days by the, the circuit people. So it was all like, it, but the competition for work when there's not as much work to go around probably makes people more afraid and more prone yeah. to group thinking, just staying within the, you know, how do I get my agent? How will I get on telly? Do you think... Yeah, yeah. You, you're probably familiar with the term elite overproduction generally as a sort of analysis of society. Maybe not. It's, not. it's like an idea. It's an idea that it's a very dangerous thing that happens and that we probably are in the midst of right now where too many people, the elite, people who expect themselves to be, to be qualified and, and entitled to become part of the elite, but there's too many of them. Hmm. So um, if you have too many graduates is the most obvious example in the modern world. Too many people come out of university with burdened with enormous debt and assuming that their degree will at the very least ensure that they can you know, earn good money and pay it off and they find it's not and it's worthless and it creates an extraordinary amount of dissatisfaction and an awful lot of the sort of politics that arises from the young at the moment is arguably, you know, stems in that. In the late 19th century, I think it was in China, something called the Taiping Rebellion was was tagged to that, which was, you know, absolutely murderous, like off the scale bloodshed, which incredibly came because um, the route to prosperity in China at that time was believed to be putting getting your children into the civil service exams and, and then more and more people studied for the civil service exams and then you know like one in ten and then one in a hundred you know were, were taken because there were far too many and it just created this this class of people who were just furious that their that their future had been denied them I mean on a much smaller scale in stand-up comedy there are probably just like a lot of yeah we're at the stage where there's just more fear and so there is yes I will try and be um, palatable. I will try not and frighten the horses. You know, I will try to make myself um, as usable in as many different formats. Possibly, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what what you know what the mindset is of people. But it would be understandable if that were the case. You know, desperately hoping to get on live at the Apollo. The last thing you want to do is say something disobliging. You know, that would that would scupper that for you. You know, such as express your support for Graham Linehan or something. You know, yeah. So, um, yeah, it can happen. But equally, of course, they might be thinking, I've got to find some way of, of um, marking myself out. But obviously, there, there are also other forms in which creative people are working now. The, the, it may well be that anyone whose mind and talent and instincts might have drawn them to stand-up comedy in the mid-90s might now be looking at, I don't know, games production or just simply TikTok or something, you know. Um, in which to, to flourish and, and not regard stand-up comedy as a route to anything they were interested in anyway. So it yeah. may just be that we, we're missing that. I don't know. Well, Ian, I've done it within my own, just, just myself. I mean, it, not you know, 
I've been I'm two separate generations within one person because I've tried for I've done comedy for 11 years then decided this is no going nowhere I'm not allowed to progress in this field anymore as a with my mm. immutable characteristics haters <laughs> would say I'm just not good enough or it's just not appealing to me anymore so then I've moved into sort of more sort of commentary so yeah the yeah. younger generation will, will move and some people like me will move you know within their own lifetime whereas you've sort of occupied a position of I guess because you've been going a long time maybe well I don't know what I can ask you about that you, how have you maintained your status of acceptance in the comedy world and appearing on GB News while having sound opinions that should normally get you in trouble? An almost <laughs> Norcottian level of, uh, of fence-sitting acceptance. But, yeah, it's incredible. You, I think it's because you've been, my, well, I would posit it's probably because you've been going so long and you've got so much respect that people just sort of, well, that's Simon, you know, we'll, we'll give him a pass. Whereas for someone like, let's say, me and Leo, we've sort of run headfirst into the politics of the comedy industry and had to just go and do these other things. He still does comedy and I do occasional bits, but, but you've mm. ma- you managed to maintain both. Well, I mean, I don't do the clubs very often. I think the venues that book me, this, you know, reason two, two, three hundred seat venues when I, when I go on tour, just know that I have an audience and most of them are around my age. And, you know, we all know half the country agrees with the stuff that you won't hear anything about in the clubs, you know, so they're not that bothered about that particularly. I'm still on the news quiz with Radio 4 and I think the Simon Evans Goes to Market series probably helped in terms of maintaining a sort of legitimacy and credibility. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I also I make sure that I think when I host the, the headliners on GB News that I am uh, doing it as me, you know, and, and one of the great things about that show and, and when I spoke to Andrew Doyle about, you know, um, when he first approached me was that, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to... Um, uh, be like a kind of wearing a little kind of Union Jack bowler hat or something, you know, while I'm going on there. It's obviously got to be a, a, a platform in which we can um, uh, maintain our own artistic integrity, for want of a better word, you know, and I, I hope I've done that. So if anything got out, if any clips got out of me saying something that was cancelable, that might still be damaging, but I, I don't think I would say that because I don't generally think those things, you know, that are, you know, the full, full strength kind of... Um, you know, culture wars, unacceptability. Even on Spiked, which I know a lot of people think of as a, as again as a, as a title that um, cultivates division. I generally think if people actually read the stuff I write, it generally keeps it quite light. And most of my flashes of real anger are directed more at you know the culture of the the, the college of policing or or you know the, the weakness of the Tory government in f- failing to. Um, commit to its uh, manifesto pledges and so on rather than directed at marginalised members of society or whatever. So, um, you know, I think generally speaking, anyone who looks into what I'm doing will see that it's not divisive, hopefully. I, I honestly do think I would much rather take the heat out of the situation and remind people that, you know, we're not here for long and let's try and have a laugh. Yeah, well, I mean, you're a, a liberal Remainer who lives in Brighton, so you're not exactly <laughs> the caricature. I mean, I mean, and I don't think I am either, personally. I think that, you know, some people might think me and Leo want to make the show some sort of a alt-right fest. But actually, I think I personally think my, my opinions are nuanced and, and subtle yeah. and not just, you don't know, not just textbook, you know. And I, don't, I think a lot of the channels like that, if people actually watch it. Yeah, I think so, too. I think the thing that, I mean, I, I'm very interested in some of the stuff that you've said about... Um, you know, the, the, the pandemic, uh, uh, I think, broke an awful lot of people um, who just couldn't believe that, you know, the, the extraordinary um, in, the degree to which our government embraced, you know, the Chinese government's uh, approach to lockdown and so on and, and, and the extraordinary 
transfer of wealth into the hands of a handful of billionaires and the, the, the in, ever, ever growing power of the big pharmaceutical companies in America to dominate the conversation and to have their propaganda accepted as the, um, uh, uh, you know, as the consensus and any deviation from it as misinformation, all of that kind of stuff. I don't regard that as necessarily a left-right divide or anything anyone should be cancelled over. It's just a very difficult territory because you have to walk a, a narrow path with slippery slopes on both sides, if you know what I mean. And, and, um, and, and that, I think, is a... You know, I think that's a job that comedians should be doing. It's a job that people like Will Carlin, uh, Will Carlin, uh, George Carlin, or um, Bill Hicks, or, or, or uh, you know Lenny Bruce, or whatever the great heroes of comedy in the past would certainly have gone there. And yet now, an awful lot of comedians seem to think that that is um, conspiracy theory, anti-Semitism, you know, and and, and frightening. Yes, and. Um I mean, I lost the connection slightly, but just as it seemed as you were about to give me a compliment, which was frustrating, but I think it will be on the recording. But you were just saying, talking about, <laughs> I've taken a, a anti sort of COVID authoritarianism view. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And, and I said something to Dara Breen on Twitter referencing Bill Hicks, and he, he wrote some reply that was look, looked mean, so I didn't read it. But, um, but the fact that Bill Hicks would be loved by many sort of lefty type comedians, but now his clips will be played on Infowars as part of one of their montages and fits in quite nicely. You see where Bill Hicks would have been. I'm not saying it had necessarily been on Infowars with Alex Jones, but he certainly wouldn't have been a lefty establishment comedian. There's no chance. He he could very easily have been on Infowars, funnily enough. I mean, and some of his stuff I always found at the time, oh, that's a bit ridiculous, but I I accepted it as playing it for last. But, I mean, he genuinely believed in, uh, you know, the the most outrageous Kennedy assassination uh, scenarios, didn't he, I think, and and, um, and also UFOs as well, so, you know. Yeah, well, Kennedy's looking more and more correct on, but maybe maybe that's another rabbit hole. But did, did, did COVID change your outlook in terms of, you know, we've had James Dellingpoll on here. It certainly changed his outlook. And certainly a lot of people became more red-pilled, which could go in two directions. I mean, they could become just more sort of politically red-pilled, reactionary or something like that. But it could also go down conspiracy rabbit holes, which I don't particularly see you doing. And some people became more spiritual. They, they, they realized there's a battle of good versus evil they even took it down to, and they became Christian, some of my friends. So did, COVID, did that whole COVID era and the bizarre things that happened change your outlook? It did, although I'm not sure in any of the ways you you mentioned. I know some. I, ha, I do have some friends I stay in touch with who um, have like Delling Pole adjacent views, and I don't share them or share them all. Um, but I like to keep those people on side. I like to just kind of basically I let a few balls whiz past me. You know, you have a WhatsApp conversation with people, and every so often they'll share something, and you just go, "I'm just going to let that go whistling past," and then we're back to joking about. But I keep an eye on it. I. I mean, it's sometimes dangerous, isn't it, to say I keep an open mind. People say I keep an open mind about 9-11. You, you, you know, that can easily translate into, for instance, it might have been the Jews, you know. Well, I don't think it was. But um, but what I do think with COVID is that it exposed um, the some of the sentiments, some of the weaknesses, some of the um, priorities of government and so on in a way that I didn't find terribly reassuring. Um, it, it it exposed where true power lies. It exposed the extent to which... There's always the law of unintended consequences, and this happens a lot, you know, and you see that if somebody presents a certain kind of programme or, or, um, or response the wrong way at the wrong moment, 
the reaction to it can be so powerful and overwhelming that it becomes impossible even to suggest again a second time, even though it was perfectly sensible. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, I mean, I don't know whether that is the case, but I still think to this day we'd have been better going down a, a broadly speaking sort of Swedish route. But I think the very fact that we had Boris Johnson in charge, who was probably exactly the sort of person that a lot of people felt was most likely to just shrug and say, let's like, let's take it, you know, take it on the chin just because he was lazy you know, rather than because it was actually the best thing to do. And consequently, it became an unpursuable uh, policy precisely because it was one that just smacked so much of Johnson's well-established <laughs> character right. flaws, you know, yeah, that kind of thing. So, I mean, it was a weird time. The, the, I mean, to come straight out of Brexit, then that huge Tory majority in December 2019, the, the, the Red Wall budget, you know, a couple of weeks later, we just seemed to be entering such a very specific kind of quite unexpected you know, Tory government agenda, and um, and then for that to arrive at that moment, I think it, it just disorientated any everyone. And yeah, so I don't generally think it, it red pilled me or black pilled me about you know who's really running the world or anything, but it was disorientating certainly. I I generally think that the vaccines were developed um, absolutely with with everyone's you know best interest with you know with with, with the with the proper uh, moral and and, and uh, professional responsibility and so on code inevitably they aren't going to be perfect some people have been i, I suspect hurt by them but overall I, I i'm pretty convinced that they saved lives and allowed us to restore normality to some extent so i'm overwhelmingly in favor of them i know there are you know there are particular issues you could you know unpick there but um that's broadly my feeling about those okay. the extent to which we need endless boosters or that we should even ever think about masking up and locking down again i'm very much uh, more dubious about that well, it's a good thing we waited till nearly 40 minutes because you may have just alienated a huge section of my audience. But um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, of course, you can have your view on the vaccines. And I don't know what the current status of, of YouTube is. So with Dr. Claire Craig, we were calling it the safe and effective uh, treatment. And um, yeah, we're, we're, yeah it's, a, it's a pure blood podcast you're on here, Simon. But, um, okay. but yeah, that's your view. And that's fair enough. On the, on the conspiracy side, you mentioned, you know, the, the potential links with anti-Semitism. People, you know, some people think that, like, for example, they listen to Dellingpole, they think some of his theories are anti-Semitic. I've never seen that at all. I don't believe that. But have you become more sensitive to that in your, you, with this revelation that you're actually biologically Jewish? Has that changed uh, things like that for you? It's, it's been interesting just in this one respect. I, d I don't feel any more sensitive when I see um, possible anti-Semitism or accusations of it one way or another. Um, I think that would be sort of dishonest somehow. But I, two of my very best friends are Jewish, and um, and I feel like my ability to talk with them about is this anti-Semitic, was that anti-Semitic, I feel like I'm in slightly more comfortable sort of inner circle conversations, and that's quite interesting. Um, for instance, you know, among those friends, the, broadly speaking, the their opinion is that. Um, most of the accusations of anti-Semitism aimed at Corbyn and and the and and his uh, cabinet and party and so on were were um, unjustified and that it was used it was weaponized. As I say, I, it's not that I have that view, but it's interesting to have that conversation with those people. And I know other people have strongly uh, alternative views to that, but it is quite interesting to get that 
kind of conversation, I suppose, yeah, as I say, from the inside to some extent. But um, Yeah, because that's quite funny. They're sort of saying, oh, you wouldn't get this, Simon. You're not Jewish. Look at this certificate. And you just found out. Yeah, you yeah, exactly. like, I think you're fine, guys. I'm in the club now. That's that's amazing. <laughs> but it, it's it's a... <sighs> It, it's not like a slam dunk at all, as I say. All, all I mean is, we, we both know, you know, there are Jews on both sides. There are plenty of Jews who think that uh, that Corbyn was was, was slandered, um, or was at, at worst, you know, um, lazy or incautious in, in not putting down uh, and not being decisive enough. But uh, I don't. I still don't have any very strong or well informed views about Israel or whatever. So that would be, you know, um, I'm, I haven't changed very much on that. The view that I do have, which is perhaps even more unpalatable than all of that, but you know, I've always felt it, is that it does suggest to me that there is something that it means to be Jewish fundamentally, because I have, I think, always felt somehow subconsciously a bit Jewish. My best friend at school was pretty much the only other Jewish boy in the school, in the class. You know, um, my he was my best man at my wedding. I'm, this is not like some I've, I've retroactively identified him as a friend. He's been my best mate for over forty years now. Um, pretty much my best mate from university, also Jewish. And this was at a time when I had no idea that I was Jewish. And it just sort of feels to me like, I don't know how it works exactly, what, you know, what enormously complex cluster of genes might, might suggest a certain sort of Jewish personality. But of course, if you extrapolate that out, that is essentially a kind of racism. Basically, you're saying race does have a, uh, you know, a fundamental, it has a meaning. It's not necessarily that some races deserve more hostility or, or to be feared or respected or liked or admired or whatever just that it is a meaningful thing and and that has been interesting because that was probably a um, a question that I felt more ambivalent about previously and and I suspect I'm somewhat more hereditarian now yeah that is really interesting and um and maybe in case we didn't explain it properly yeah you, you found out biologically your father was Jewish and so of course culturally it's matrilineal so I suppose in some sense it yeah. wouldn't make you Jewish but in another sense it would and and the, the idea of it being hereditary or genetic is fascinating, but like you say, it does open a lot of tricky doors, potentially things like IQ and all those kind of things. And yeah. not, people who open do those doors don't last on YouTube very long, so it maybe won't go down <laughs> that route. But, um, but yeah, it, it, does, it does open some interesting questions. One question you didn't, they didn't ask on trigonometry about it is, wouldn't it have been strange if you were, I think you're probably somewhat of an atheist, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if you'd have been like a devout Christian, would it yeah. or something like that? Wouldn't it have been very strange to find out you were Jewish? Yes, it, it certainly would have done. I, I'm not devout Christian or devout anything else, and I've always had a fairly open mind about spirituality and paths to awakening and so on. I, I and I'm still open and, and and still seeking. You know, I find that stuff very interesting. I, I'm quite interested at the moment in a guy who talks on YouTube. I can't remember his name, but he talks about analytic idealism essentially. But you know. The idea that, that consciousness is is the fundamental reality of, of the universe in which we all live, you know, and I think you can map that onto different religions and, and so on. So I'm interested in all of that, and that hasn't that hasn't um, proved problematic in that respect. My biological father, for what it's worth, was very much secular, and um, and I don't think there's any. And I of of my Jewish friends, they're pretty secular, but. One or two things I do quite like about Jewish tradition rather than religion, you know, the Friday night dinner, the keeping the family close, the, uh, the you know, the sense of being a knitted together community um, in, a, in a hostile, sometimes in a hostile land. There are aspects of that that I would quite like to adopt. I sometimes wish I, I, I had. You been. just described northerners to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, 
that that is interesting that it's well that yeah it's good to get the dinners i suppose but um yeah, yeah. so it's <laughs> yeah it, it would have been extra it must have been a, a, a strange revelation anyway obviously to suddenly find out you, you, your background is completely different that's and you've dealt with that on other podcasts and it's obviously a massive thing i just thought there'd be an extra layer if it also affected your sort of fundamental religious views an extra level but yeah yeah well, I mean, I, you know, without obviously, it's a, it's a bit pat to say so, but Jesus was a Jew, you know, and it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's not a, um, if to the extent that I, I think, you know, hereditarian principles are raised, it would that wouldn't clash with it particularly. It would no. be like, what do you do with this information? I suppose, yeah. Yeah, no, just another potential complexity, but you, you haven't faced that one. But so, I mean, there's so many things I want to ask you about the about the wider cultural stuff, and then. And I don't know. I don't know which way to go because there's there's also masculinity. You found I, I was shocked that you were taking testosterone. I found out that yeah. you had low test because I, I actually got a testosterone test just out of interest. Mine was just really high. It was like higher than a lot of like young fitness Excellent. YouTubers. I was like I'm smashing it, but um, it was it was decent. It wasn't. I've, I've got carried away. It was it was moderate. It was solid. You know what I mean? But you shocked. I would never have had you down to someone with low testosterone. Although it does make sense now. This was two thousand and. 2017, I don't know how long it had been low, but I was, I got the blood test because I was feeling rubbish. Um, so I think I'd gone for about six months with just feeling very low energy, low focus, inability to make decisions, that kind of thing. Uh, and just not equal to the day generally, you know, just real kind of want to lie in bed. Something quite similar to depression, but more more like a fog than a, than a bad mood, you know. So that suggested to me it hadn't been that low for that long because that was what I was seeking some kind of um, answer to. And, and I suspected actually it might be testosterone because um, I had read quite a lot online about this kind of, you know, half the, you know, the Western world is, is um, low in testosterone due to all kind of endocrine disruptors, as you know from Alex Jones turning the frogs gay and so on. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, that's widely attested. How long it's been going on, I don't know. But I do also remember, I have another friend who told me that he had, um, he had his approach had been not to take injections. He, had, he was a bit younger when he found out. And he started getting boxing lessons. And he said, um, fighting is the best way to get it restored um, healthily, you know, and naturally, and um, for as long as you can. But uh, and he was looking great. I remember having that conversation with him and, and, and really registering, you know, he had, he had a bit of a, you know, glint in his eye, which hadn't been there for a while, you know. And he said it's actually, to some extent, it's getting hit incredibly that actually restores your health as much as being fit or whatever or lifting weights. You actually need to feel, huh, you know, I'm under attack. What am I going to do? You need that on a regular basis. And his view, which, again, I think sounds pretty plausible, is that it's domestic life which lowers men's testosterone as much as all the, the plastics and the you know stuff in the meat or the water supply, whatever. It's just being surrounded by um, domesticity, a wife, small children, that nature wants your testosterone to go down because it lowers your uh, tendency to take risks. It certainly lowers your tendency to seek sexual gratification elsewhere, you know. And so, yeah, the world has selected for that. Um, over the years. So I think that might be why yours is still high because you don't have to <laughs> fill up with that, you know, and you constantly feel under attack. As soon as you start to feel cosy and put your feet out, that's when it happens. Yeah, and I don't have the domesticity, which is is said to lower it from, from new fathers and so on. Women's tears lower it temporarily. 
Um, yeah. The getting hit thing's funny because I've just started boxing lessons and I was saying to the guy, you, know, you, you can hit me if you want. So I think you have to pay a bit more to get a, a man to come to the house and hit you. <laughs> it was more um, footwork. So it was more like the basic. But I'm just like, yeah. I must have sensed it. I was like, you know, I don't mind getting hit. So I was like, <laughs> just, that's Fight Club, isn't it? In a nutshell, I mean, that's what it was all about, the movie Fight Club. Absolutely. But I've had, I've never, I've never had boxing training, but I do remember on a handful of occasions, often funnily enough in Edinburgh, um, possibly because, you, you know, you, there, there's a little thing in Edinburgh, you know, if you get involved in the wrong altercation um, with an English accent during festival when some of the locals are feeling invaded, you know, I think I've taken a blow three or four times to the head. Wow. Not, not like knocked over, but you know, cuffed possibly even, you know, if you, if you were to slow it down, but enough to feel, whoa. And yeah. um, it does, it kind of, it's like, I don't know exactly how to say it, but it's quite energizing, you know, it feels quite good. You know, there's, there's a part of it. There's, it's not, it's not something you can, it's a bit like a cold shower or whatever, you know, it's a good, huh, you know, but it wakes you up, you get a ringing in Straight the ears in. and then you're, you're immediately awake and you're on your toes and, yeah, it's not a bad feeling at all. But as yeah, I say, I think once you're in your fifties, you can't afford. You cannot afford. I couldn't afford at this point, really. To, you know, to take the risk of getting regular blows to the head. So. No, yeah, that's my concern because I sort of need my brain for my work. I have been in one street fight up in Newcastle where the loads of the lads, teenagers, really. But we were barely out of being teenagers. We were attacking my mate, so I dived in to stop them as a diversion. Got punched in the face. I was more of a yeah. diversion. That was my <laughs> got punched in the face, and we got out of there. And a couple of blows myself. Happy. Main thing was it, I realized I wasn't a coward. At least in that situation, so I was happy about that. Yeah. But um, but have, has it changed your this testosterone you take now? Then has it changed you? Do you start watching a lot more Andrew Tate videos? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it, must have it made definitely a did change me in terms of it. It got rid of that terrible feeling of of. Um, and and what's it called? Anhedonia, is it? When you just can't find joy in anything, you know. Yeah. It was a, it was a kind of um, it, yeah. It got me out of that trough, but I haven't become like absurdly masculine again. No, um, I, and I'm not like priapic or anything. You know, there's no sort of sense of 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 being sort of. Uh, raised above what you would expect. I mean, I've just been restored roughly to what a 58-year-old man historically should be like, you know. It's just that most right, of us, right. an awful lot of us are currently... I had, in, at that point, the testosterone levels that would normally have been associated with an 85-year-old man, you know, historically. Uh, and that is just not right. good enough, you know. You just don't feel equal right. to... And obviously, on stage, you need a certain amount of aggression as well, especially, as you say, if you're going down the uh, Prometheus Rising stage group one <laughs> category yeah, exactly. of comedy. You know, yeah. if you're willing to take the fight to the audience, you've got to be a little bit, you know, you've got to be assertive, and, and it's restored that. They, they did a test, I think, on some people from BuzzFeed or one of those type of journals and it turned out they had all had the testosterone of 80 year olds and they were like in their 20s and things this is where we are now even my allegedly solid testosterone i'm boasting about would be laughed at by an 18th century farmer as you say it's all gone well, yeah. well done but on this topic just just briefly a kind of related topic is you talked a little bit on some of the podcasts about marriage and things and this sort of i'm not sure what my question is yet but it's sort of masculinity and marriage we we've got the collapse of marriage we've got the collapse of the birth rate We've got men in crisis. We've got incels. Do you have sort of any take on that about how the young men or men in general can sort of get out of this problem? Because I, I had a funny comparison. See what you think to this, because um, you have so much historical knowledge. I said that men now, I have friends who are saying, look, we've got to bring men and women together again. 
they might be traditional, they might be sort of not very feminist, uh, they don't like all that stuff, but they say, but men need to get on board as well and they need to stop being red-pilled and obnoxious and they don't. They shouldn't be like Andrew Tate. And, and I say, well, men are so alienated now and so beaten down and crushed and abused by and discriminated against and abused by the society and our Western culture. We're like Germany after the First World War, where we're so humiliated and angry that we're not actually ready to just make peace yet. We're more on like our Hitler phase, and we're sort of getting <laughs> cultural revenge, if anything, through things like, you know, Red Pill, through the popularity of Tate. I like Andrew Tate, but, you know, through things like that. What do you think? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's such a multivariate problem. Obviously, there are important series, speakers across the spectrum, well, not across the spectrum, on the right, addressing it. I'm, I'm more Peterson than Tate, you know, in terms of telling young men to take responsibility, get the fundamentals right, and, and trust the process, you know. And um, I wouldn't recommend that, that young men regard women as the enemy or regard them as, I mean, there's a sort of sense in some in some of the content that it's like how to train a dog. You know, you have to assert that you're master and don't get sentimental about it. The dog will love you the more if it knows what your relationship is and, and, and you know, that it needs permission to get on the sofa. There's a little bit of a, uh, a, a tang of that, I think, to some of that, that advice. But... Um, it's so much. I mean, I honestly do think the the endocrine disruptors are having an effect. I do think that. I think there's, you know, I don't think you can turn around your um, your your life or your uh, determination to um, to build a family and to take on the responsibilities of a career and and uh, uh, and the um, yeah the general burden. You know, if if you're if you're physically being compromised by the environment you live in and that's not easy for people to get around there's a guy i know who um who produces he, he produces kind of software for online trainers personal trainers to use it but he makes interesting videos himself and he did one where he spent a fortnight trying to eliminate zinestrogens from his own sort of diet whether it be you know plastic um, water bottles or whatever and um, and he just said it was so incredibly hard. And even then, he didn't manage to make much of an impact. And he's like a 32-year-old fit, you know, relatively built guy. But, um, yeah, it, it, it is it's tricky. That particular aspect of things, I don't think you can underestimate it. But I would hope there is some kind of cyclical thing um, where we might be kind of already bottoming out in terms of the, you know, the... Uh, going their own way kind of thing you know I think I think I mean my kids are 19 and 16 I think my son and his mates are actually pretty traditionally male I get that feeling in a way that even my daughter only four years older I saw a lot of more of her kind of gang being a little bit sort of asexual about you know and um, I'm just thinking oh I'd rather not get involved with all of that sounds a bit too complicated to me so I don't know but I mean God knows you could pick anything like online. The availability of online pornography is obviously a, a massive um, debate. Whether that and I don't I haven't had that conversation with my kids yet, but it must have a, a huge impact, right? If you're if you can get stuff that's so vivid and so effective, basically, you know, just on your phone all the time. Um, that eliminates a huge part of the motivation to put up with the bother of. <laughs> <laughs> of courting, yeah. doesn't it, in the traditional sense, you know? Yeah, and, and exactly. And you even said on on another podcast that you even thought religion was, to an extent, 
intended to drive fertility, which some of our Christian audience might might yeah, not yeah. like. But but I suppose that's, I it's so. not that controversial. It encourages marriage. It encourages lots of societal structures that are, that are helpful. Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about it until the last year or so, but I think that's true, and especially obviously the Catholic Church. But I think generally what we hadn't previously realised was how much of a you know. I, I mean, it would just select for that, you know, and that's how it would grow. But yes, it has become more and more obvious that. Um, that uh, people are actually not as inclined to have loads of babies as, we, as we'd previously thought, <laughs> if allowed to sort of express individualism. I've never gone down the endocrine disruptors path because then you go a bit mad, don't you? It's like, bro, you're using shower gel, you're drinking tap water. Do you, do, yeah. do you hate yourself? Like, I was like, I can't. It's too much. Exactly right. That's the thing. There are thirty or forty of them. You know, it's not like oh, all you have to do is give up seed oils. Although, to be honest, even if you're trying to give up seed oils, you know, you'd be amazed how many products they're in. So, I mean, it... yeah, I'm going for the more spiritual approach to it. I'll conquer it that way. But um, just quickly, then, I always ask like two questions. Nearly always, I would say get a big blonde wig. Of course, that's a uh, yeah, another that's massive the, that's, boost. That's a big one. Yeah, <laughs> um, the blonde wig. What about um, this question I always ask about, I always say, is Britain or sometimes England finished? Which is a big question. Loads of people think the country is just in massive decline. You seem slightly more optimistic when I've spoken to you about this. Well, I think the whole of the West is going through horrible spasms of post-COVID. You know, the, the, the tax burden is high. There's a general kind of feeling of defeatism. We've been We've been battered by... Even if you were pro-Brexit, you know, you can't be happy with the way Brexit has been handled. And if you were against Brexit, you know, you, all your worst nightmares appear to be unfolding in front of you. There's so many things to feel down about, but that won't, I think, be forever. I think there'll be, in fact, I suspect possibly, you know, the Tories are rarely quite as stupid as they appear to be. And I suspect they might be able to pull a few levers in 10 months time to prepare us for the next election that suddenly release a bit of cash into the economy. It's absurd, but we live in a capitalist world. And the reality is 2% growth makes all the difference, you know, and 1% shrinkage just makes makes you feel like you're going down the plug hole. Whether or not we're exactly in recession, certainly the amount of inflation we've had and everything, these, these are superficial things. I know it's not answering the question you've asked about Britain in terminal decline, but it can give you that vibe. You know, it's a bit like, is your marriage in trouble? Well, you know, a lot of that might just literally be the row you had last night. And if, if the other person comes and says, sorry, everything suddenly feels rosy again, you know. So... I would say Britain, I mean, it has had its best days, clearly. It's had, it's had its, its, I mean, it had got the, it probably had the best days that any country has ever had, didn't it? You know, in terms of status worldwide <laughs> and the legacy it's left. And we are benefiting, you know, on the one hand, we're not held in the same esteem we were. And a lot of, lot of the, the, you know, the changes and decline, you know, when, when you think, my God, we used to be the greatest power in the world and now look at us. But on the other hand, we are all enjoying the benefits of the, the slow slide from that situation. So it's probably still, it's a weird thing. I know philosophers have said, a lot of philosophers have said that the greatest pleasure, I think, was it Nietzsche said this, that the, um, the, the definition of pleasure is the sense of becoming you know, in coming into one's full potential, you know, that's that's where and and it is hard to feel that in Britain at the moment. I think, you know, the direction of travel throughout my whole life has been managed decline. You know, we had a surge during Thatcher that was really about North Sea oil and and I don't know whether we'll we'll ever have that again. But there are places where you can look and see more positive signs than the ones that tend to dominate. You know, there are certain sectors where we are still pretty strong. I think, generally speaking, we are 
still obviously you know uh, a, a, um, a destination for a lot of migrants which we may feel ambivalent about about welcoming but still the fact that they want to live here rather than France would suggest it's you know there are certain advantages to it I think if we if we can get if we can get some um, some easing on the tax burden some productivity gains I mean these you know these are fairly boring economic issues but I think they will change people's general perception a lot more than we might think there is a tendency a human tendency when things go wrong to feel the game is up you know I know it myself if I wake up you know uh, with a bad back or a crook neck or something I just start to go oh my god you're a crock you know <laughs> you're yeah. never going to be healthy and happy again but actually you know a little bit of exercise and some stretches and so on and you get back on your feet so yeah, I still think it's a pretty good place to live on the whole. You know, we have a glorious countryside. We have some of the most beautiful old buildings in the world. It would be lovely to see things. I think things that would really help restore confidence would be, I, I go against my general grain, which is usually free market rather than command economy, but I do think perhaps we need a coordinated effort to understand how to reinvent town centres, high streets, you know, the built environment that people live in can have a hugely depressive effect on on mood and, and positivity if it's allowed to just fall into ruin and, and disrepair. And one thing you see as a stand-up comedian when you tour the country is the rubbish state a lot of small to medium-sized erstwhile market towns have fallen into, you know, a lot of boarded-up shops, a lot of um, arcades and pound shops and so on. And, I mean, reality is, you know, internet and so on have, have, have eaten into um, the, the profitability of retail. I think we, it would be quite nice to see a coordinated effort to try and restore some pride and, and um, appeal to town centres and get people coming together again in community. That's a thing that we, we, we've, you know, we've always been good at Britain historically. I think people have had grassroots communities whether it be pubs or working men's clubs or whatever or church and we're in a bit of a dip on that front at the moment i think that's something that would restore a lot of um optimism you know yeah those kind of projects that roger scooton was working on this uh, you know beauty yeah. and this unnecessary immiseration of uh, the brutalist architecture and so on yeah that's certainly yeah. an area that could be addressed but i mean i'm surprised how optimistic you are because it's someone like me i look at cost of living housing immigration decline of christianity wokeness racial tension what could go on and on but small boats you can go on and on i mean to me the, the whole thing you know authoritarianism post-covid across the west and we could go on and on about how i don't know i, I just tend to loads of people now just have this sense that it's kind of over but it's, it's good that it's good that you don't feel quite as bad as that and um, on some of those notes, my other question I like to ask is, how do we win? And you might not accept the framing of the question, but if we're in a culture war, how do we how do we win it for the good people? Well, it's very good question what culture war covers. You know, I've listened to Douglas Murray talking about this recently, and he said something. I thought there was something in which he just said it's maybe just time to move on and ignore it and think what would I be doing if I wasn't, you know, endlessly arguing that you know about what is a woman. I do think possibly the trans thing, although every time you think it's over, there's a new outrage. But I think possibly the tide has turned on that. The the great mass of people who had assumed previously that all you had to say was, oh, just be kind, live and let live, have realised that there's something more sinister going on there. But, um, of course, the, the long march through the institutions, which took place under Tony Blair, you know, has arguably reached the gift shop now and... Um, 
and there is a you know it's a kind of it's a done deal and um, all our uh, academic institutions certainly just seem to be completely riddled with a certain amount of um of, of programming now and I, I don't know whether that can be reversed um so i think probably it does reflect the changing demographics, specifically by ethnicity, you know, in the West generally, in, in Britain and in America and in France and so on, we have all grown up and lived under a predominantly white and arguably even, you know, Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture or, you know, obviously America's had strong Jewish influence for, throughout my life and um, Catholics, you know, are on, are on the, the Supreme Court and so on. But there's generally it's been quite a European Eurocentric culture and that is changing. Whether I feel happy, I mean, I'm sure I would have loved to just carried on living as top race forever, you know, but it's not going to be the case. And I think some of what we're seeing are kind of spasms of, you know, not entirely coherent or rational, but understandable attempts to um, not only assert parity now, but to retroactively assert, um, you know, contributions in the past. You know, I, I kind of get that, if I'm honest. There is, if I think if I were a member of, uh, if I was, to, you know, if I was a, 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 a member of a group that was becoming more powerful, one of the things I would want to do would be to say, and by the way, we were writing good books in the 19th century too, you know, it wasn't just you lot who were focused endlessly on your own output. So we might just have to adapt to, to that reality to some extent. But I think to say it's a transitional moment is not necessarily you know a value-free judgment but it doesn't mean that you're going to keep on transitioning forever i think there might be some stability will emerge at some point and i just hope that we can uh, as i say the, the one thing i do feel you know always is that it's such a different experience when you confront stories on twitter or on screen or or um even in in like large-scale debates or whatever compared to what happens when you speak to people face to face you know I hardly ever meet anyone in person that I find problematic on that front you know um there's a handful of people who are obviously you know committed to rabble rousing and creating friction but um the great mass of people sort of do want to get on with their lives and you can get a very distorted view of it if you're not careful and start to slip into despair if if you if you get too much of your information online and not enough in you know in the real world yeah, I've definitely heard that lately. People saying, well, you know, Twitter, we all know the thing, Twitter's not the real world. But then I heard people, someone say recently, actually, the real world's now been so influenced by it that it is now becoming the real world. But but maybe not. It's not. I'm not sure on that. It's a, but I, I like interesting take on, on the culture war. Um, very, very much spoken like a Brighton dwelling liberal because, I, don't know, I mean, sorry, I mean, it's just a note. But, you know, you're much more, I don't know, I don't know about sanguine, but you're much more sort of, I see it more as like we need to win this culture war, crush our enemy completely. You're much more like, well, I get their point. I think if if I felt that were an option, and if I, you know, if I felt I had the courage to take that fight, I can see the appeal of it certainly. And I think there are certain points which are expressed online, as I say, which I with which I, I have no truck at all. But um, I suppose I just don't. It's a little bit like you know, you go the war in Ukraine. Okay, Russia invaded. There's no question about that. Therefore, is there any settlement outside of Russia re just acknowledging the the borders that existed before 
you know, the invasion or perhaps before 2014 that wouldn't amount to capitulation. And then there's another argument that, you know, would it perhaps be best to minimize blood loss and, and, um, and, and death toll now and to minimize the possibility for uh, escalation into a nuclear conflict by making certain amount of, um, of uh, concessions? Who knows? It's a question of reading that situation with greater detail and expertise than I probably have. But you know what I mean. There has to come a point in every conflict where you kind of go, <clears throat> we're not going to win all the territory back that we lost since 1965, you know. Yeah, okay. Well, I have to say, I mean, it was interesting to hear that sort of macro view because on the micro, you're always very sound, in my opinion, when we're on headliners, if it's a trans issue or something like that, you always, you yeah. know, and you won't, you won't have any truck with kind of, lefty nonsense of you know you always sort of like no sorry josh look at this again <laughs> it's usually josh that goes shouting out saying you know look at the facts all that time that yeah. me and you both uh piece of movement on ian stone about kyle rittenhouse and you were just like no i'm sorry Ian, that's completely yeah, yeah. wrong so i found you very sort of staunch that on those was things. interesting because that was a specific case where there had been terrible misreporting and people have misunderstood the situation and they swallowed a load of lies and they did they were deliberate lies i think if you pull back from that situation and then say however would would some slightly more updated um legislation as regards gun ownership in america well i would probably be in favor of that to be honest i'm not an nri kind of guy do you know what i mean but i i, I do think the british don't understand all the complexity of gun ownership in america but equally i do think that they could conceivably um you know revisit their their second amendment with a with a, with a with a view to minimizing the availability of assault weapons to you know lunatics <laughs> yeah yeah that's quite interesting you see because it's so your ostensibly often seems sort of like a you know on the right and on the on gb or something like that and then yeah. a bit more nuanced turns out you know you just get more and more liberal the, or more and more lefty the more we look into it and <laughs> it's interesting you're, you're with any hey you're complicated plus you're out you know like the comedians we talked about is it is a complicated uh, outsider rebel figure. So I suppose you don't want to be pinned into any box, particularly, do you? I do think when you are a stand-up comedian, when you're actually on stage, you you usually do have to present um, a slightly more cartoonishly, you know, thick black felt lines around your character, your persona, so that people understand where you are, and then and then in terms of nuance, the way you do that is by revealing the flaws in that in your argument or position, but as if unknowingly, do you know what I mean? Unwillingly, unwittingly. Mm -hmm. I think in a conversation like this, you know, I, I'm more inclined to admit to doubt and ambiguity and and um, and the possibility that I fail to, con you know, properly weigh up all the considerations. But on stage, it's it's simply funny to be preposterously confident about your point of view, isn't it? Yeah. You know, yeah. That's <laughs> all right. Well, I've taken up over an hour of your time Sam so maybe we'll, we'll end on that uh, we've asked my, I've asked my big questions about how we save the country and the culture um, where and can I people fail to answer them yeah well you've answered them in an annoyingly kind of nuanced way but I was hoping for something much more like this is how Nick and, uh, <laughs> just get your sword out of you Deus Vault <laughs> yeah yeah um I got to say, I mean, I do love all that stuff, all, all those online kind of, you know, the, the chivalry guild type stuff. I, I love it. I love the aesthetics of it. But, you know, I know that isn't going to be me. So I have to be, <laughs> have yeah, to be yeah. realistic. Be yourself. It's got to be me. Um, what do you think? They say? So what, what's your Twitter? It's uh, Simon. The Simon Evans. The Simon Evans. So make sure you go on Simon's Twitter. And where else would you like to direct people, Simon? Do you have a show out or anything like that? 
Yeah, well, I've been touring in um, as of two weeks from now, um, and I'm still working that up from from the uh, the project that was in Edinburgh. And um, the uh, if you go to thesimonevans.com, that's my website, and you'll find all the dates on there as well. So it would be lovely to see you. Um, and that tour will carry on into the spring as well, but those dates at the moment, just for the for the autumn. A lot of them in the southwest, a couple in the Midlands, uh, probably get up into the north. I've only literally just stopped touring the work of the devil um, t- three months ago, and that was nearly four years, obviously interrupted by COVID. So um, wow. it's kind of crazy, but yeah, it's a never-ending tour like Bob Dylan. Well, without that, I go broke. <laughs> yeah. Is that, um, is that available on any format work of the devil? Like on I've, I haven't. I mean, I've got a, I've got a recording I've made myself, but I don't think it's going to be good enough to be released. But I would love to get a, a proper show done, and I am hoping that that will happen. Um, I don't feel it's like time specific, so it could still happen. But yeah, haven't got it as yet. Okay, that's always my disappointment with these Edinburgh shows. You write them, and, they're, they're, and then we just we don't, but they're lost. Yeah, and there was a period, of course, when you could make a living selling DVDs, but nobody pays for it now. So unless you're somebody that Netflix want to put on um it seems to be difficult to uh to monetize that and make it work but hopefully i will create a um i will get together with somebody and, and make something available there is a dvd available um or you can get it as a, an audible i think or or buy it on on amazon but um that's from nearly 10 years ago now it's a good one yeah i, I have think. it that's the sort of yeah. best of of your standard yeah it was that's right yeah interesting to watch now with hindsight <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So go wait, watch that, but go to Simon's website. Go and see him on tour and uh, follow him on Twitter if you're not already for some crazy reason. And, uh, and on Headliners. Oh, on Headliners, yeah. Well, I'll probably see you <laughs> soon at work. Yeah, Headliners, how did I forget? Every night, 11 p.m. And you, you, you do t- Monday and Tuesday, don't you, as host? As a rule, yeah. Yes, I find that the easiest way to uh, plan my, my life out. Um, Martin, the producer, loves to uh, throw me a curveball if he can. But generally speaking, yeah. Yeah, well, if they listen to this podcast, they probably watch already, but headliners, 11 p.m. GB News, you'll see probably me and Simon combined in a powerful combination. Pinch but anyway, you're pinching a lefty and then in, on reflection thinking it's more nuanced. Um, all right. Thanks, mate. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. All right. That was Simon. Fascinating as ever, I thought. Hope you agree. If you're watching on YouTube, give us a subscribe, give us a like. If you're listening on audio, why not leave a five-star review? And thanks for all your reviews so far. I really appreciate them, especially the ones that are very glowing about me. And if you want to support the show, go to buymeacoffee.com slash Dixon. You'll notice we don't do adverts anymore because I don't really want to interrupt the flow, but it does cost money to do the show. So if you want to support us, buymeacoffee.com slash Dixon. Leave a comment. I read them all and I'll reply. And we'll see you again next week. <laughs>